Let's rock. We're excited. Welcome to this very special episode of More Score and Score the Podcast. Uh, Justin Hurwitz, who we have spoken to before, but also director Damien Chazelle. Uh, Writer-director Damien Chazelle, we're uh, so excited about Babylon. The film is releasing December 23rd. The soundtrack is out now as you're listening to this. And uh, Robert, um, I know you wanted to kick us off with a question. I had an easy question. First of all, lovely (laughs) to see both of you. It's been a minute. Um, And I was trying to remember earlier, and maybe one of you can remind me, one of you reached out to me or sent me Guy and Madeline on a park bench in 2008 or 9, and can you remember in any way, A, who made that connection, B, how stupid I was not to buy stock in Damien Chazelle and Justin Hurwitz at that moment, because I should have, and C, how incredible that there was a, movie made about like all my favorite things musicians and love affairs and my alma mater was representing in the house but how did we connect do either of you remember and if not we can rock on but do you does it anything ring a bell in that i think that was me i think i sent it knowing that you were the music guy and I think your response, I know your response was never send something that sounds this terrible. Cause it was like a crappy <laughs> MIDI. It was a crappy MIDI demo that I didn't use DAWs at the time. I didn't. Oh, it use- wasn't the movie. It was just no, the music. It was a demo. And I, um, I didn't use DAWs at the time. I used, I orchestrated straight into finale and then listened to the little teeny, you know, MP3s that it would spit out. And I was so proud of it. I was like, hey, you know, this big, you know, music, head of music in Hollywood, I'm going to send this, I'm going to send this demo to. And you listen to it and you're like, never send this kind of thing to anybody. Was I right? You were, yeah, you were right. And then I, uh, it took me a few years, but I eventually had to learn all the software that people had been telling me, you need to learn this stuff. You that's need what finally to kicked you out of your Luddite, your Luddite. Uh, oh, that's stuff. funny. Damien, so you heard um, those demos, and did it ever occur to you this sounds shitty? Or did you say, I totally understand where <laughs> he's going. It doesn't matter, because when you're having the communication that you two have, you don't yeah, have a real is. trumpet player. You just, I got it. Yeah. It sounded great to me. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, no, yeah, but I remember, yeah, it, it, we did send you the movie. It just was, it just had, it just didn't have, we hadn't done the, the real score yet. So it was, it was all demo music on it. So you got kind of a rough cut of the movie with this really bad sounding MIDI version of the score, which again, I, I, I thought, you know, would still, I think I was completely in favor of sending it to you as well. But I remember your response. It was exactly what Justin That's said. really, first of all, incredibly cruel of me. No, but you also and, said some kind things. You said you said that you liked the um the um the, the I think the overall vibe. I think oh yeah, you liked the 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 Jason Palmer who who is the lead in it. So, so you had some kind things to say about the actors. Nothing um, to say about Justin, but that's okay. <laughs> First of all, it's really there's there's too much for us to share and not pertinent to this conversation about Babylon, but there's so much in this story um about Hollywood that's really interesting. Number one, it's not about what it's about. I may have been having a really difficult day on, you know, like Planet of the Apes nine and you and I got your thing was kind of 
had lost all ability to be polite and just said, you know, dudes, come on. But um, forgive me, I hope. I, I need to ask your forgiveness because I'm, I missed a bet because the next thing that happened is you made whiplash and uh, it was like... You made what? whiplash, you made La La Land, which are two m musical, speaking of how just yeah. music works in movies, are totally unique um they've stood out to me for a long time especially like the the end of whiplash especially is just such a I, I mean you've heard this a thousand times but such an incredible musical way that it's propelling the storytelling um but it's all throughout la la land we i got married and we played la la land all throughout the 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 wedding so it's very personal to me tell me about how you started thinking about how music would function i know you start very early you guys both start discussing things early but when did it start for babylon I mean, as early as we can, really. Damien sent me the script in fall of 19, which, I don't know, Damien, was that kind of your first presentable draft? Was that sort of when the producers oh, yeah. got it? Yeah, I mean, even, yeah, right, exactly. Right right around when the producers got it. But before, before we kind of tried getting, you know, sending it to studios or anything like that, I think it was, yeah. Mm. Um, so that's it, truly at the beginning of this pipeline. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, was some, it was sometime, I think it was even a little before fall 2019, probably when I first sent it to, to Joy, but it was sometime in 2019. Yeah. Well, that's when, I, that's when I started, but that's when I sort of dove in, but, um, did you send him some MIDI demos? Sorry. Go ahead, no. please. Don't let me interrupt. <laughs> no, but he does, uh, I mean, uh, well, he does piano demos and then, um, and then, uh, I mean, yeah, it, right. That they are MIDI, uh, eventually, but they, they just, they're better MIDI. When you yeah, get they're a not, script from Damien, does it say music here? I mean, in other words, do you sort of spot a script or do you talk about it? How do you approach the collaboration? Well, I think it's um, it's a mix because I think certainly like in a movie like Babylon, for instance, there's a lot of instances of on-screen music. So those are specified in the script. But uh, but then and some of the underscore actually is specified for certain of the montages and things like that, for instance. So there's a fair amount of kind of specifying. But it's very it's it, like you said, it's very it's not like real description of what the music will be. It's just, you know, music here. Um, but, but, you know, so then that, I think that gives Justin a place to start from, but that's also only a sliver of the ultimate amount of music that the overall film will need. But at least, at least it kind of gives them a starting point, I think. And we and, had to go through and talk about where, even with the performance stuff, like where it was performance and where we would keep it going. Cause a lot of times I remember it wasn't so obvious in the script where you wanted to keep that same music going as we were cutting away to different, different scenes or different um you know different parts of a sequence scorse you know the word it was the cop <laughs> coppola's word and uh, there's a lot of it in babylon where yeah. source yep. becomes score and uh i mean how much can you do first of all it's music wall to wall it's a phenomenal achievement what you've done musically it's it is just so musical and for those of us that love musical movies it's just triumphant amount of music and interesting you know i listened well can i go off of that robert yeah. because what i want to ask part of the reason that justin you come in so early and i'm curious both of your impression on this what is it that music can help inform at that early stage of a story because i'm sure you're going to get notes from everybody and their mother and you know their friend um but obviously you want music to be able to contribute to something to the story i i imagine 
that that's because you want to be able to find a little bit of a momentum early on that can exist even before the music exists. But what, what, what's the reason that music is, is such an early thought? Yeah. I mean, when, when there's a character who plays an instrument, like in this movie or other movies we've made, obviously then it's a, there's a very, you know, important narrative purpose. But um, when it comes to the sort of the other uses of music, I love the way that in so many of Damien's movies and so many of the parts of the movies, music and picture are really so symbiotic. So even things that are not performances, I remember he was storyboarding sequences like, um, I won't, I don't think this is an important, super important story point to get away, but Manny racing in a car to, he has to get a camera. And um, that, that was, that was all like highly storyboarded. So I was working on a demo and uh, Damien was, making like hand-drawn storyboards and cutting an animatic together and i was you know structure shaping shaping the demo to fit the storyboards and he was trimming and shaping the storyboards to fit the demo and both of them were coming together at the same time so that that sequence could be very musical you know the music would fit and the picture would fit and it could all be very rhythmic you know it could and the sequence would end right on right on the downbeat, and the whole sequence would just kind of uh, picture and music would would just fit like a glove. Is that one of the singles? The uh, score to that Manny's. It's like the track. cousin. It's like the cousin of that of that track. So the one we released was "Call Me Manny." Um, this other one is called "Herman's Hustle." If that sounds familiar, there was a track in La Land called "Herman's Habit" because my grandfather was a sax player, like a really great sax player. It's I think why my sister and I became went into music professionally. But uh, anyway, so I've been naming uh, tracks with saxophone after my grandfather, uh, who I never oh, knew. So great. Who I never really knew. But anyway, uh, so anyway, Herman's Hustle, you guys will hear. That's the track that I was developing and Damien was sort of storyboarding and one of many tracks that we were creating an animatic at the same time that I was demoing. So in a sense, it's almost with the storyboard kind of, pass of this and music for the storyboard you're almost constructing an early version of the entire score like it, it beyond just kind of sketches of ideas but it's it's more than building blocks because you can start to anticipate what timing and i guess other things that m maybe inform how it's then shot later on is that correct yeah not for the whole score i mean there are plenty of cues where i have to watch the scene like any composer you watch the scene and you sort of feel what it wants to be but for a number of sequences um in this movie yeah they damien knew he wanted it to be very rhythmic and we started figuring out what that music would be before the movie was shot damien have you ever shot a scene in babylon with music in your ears that had been written for that scene kind of the couple directors yeah ask their composer to give them a vibe yeah i mean uh i mean i've done that at, at this point with uh, on all the movies um mm. uh so you know even first man even though there's no we didn't really need music uh because uh, there's no source music there um I, I i sort of find it so helpful as soon as possible to just get some sense of what the key for me i guess it's just figuring out what 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 the theme is or what the themes uh, are uh, musically what what that key melody or soundscape or whatever it is uh, harmony whatever it's going to be that kind of defines or helps define or crystallize the sound of the movie what that's going to be um, and so in First Man it was the sort of main melody on theremin just kind of had that and sometimes I play that during the shoot 
um, on on Babylon. It was sort of a mix again of, in that case, a lot of the on-screen music, which we needed to play anyway. But then there would be um, just you know things for, for instance, even just you know scenes of of Manny and, and Nelly, uh, uh, Margot's character talking or interacting. You know where there was just a certain kind of energy needed and 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 um, uh, a certain kind of musical momentum needed that might not even wind up being what's used in the cut uh, on film, but just, uh, you know, to get you into the scene, to get the actors into the scene would be, would be. So they would hear it as well. I mean, uh, yeah, initially we wouldn't, uh, you know, you have to be, you know, uh, you want to not sort of, uh, it's one of the challenges of why sometimes I wish we could just shoot silent movies again, because uh, uh, you want to not totally corrupt production sound as much as possible. So whenever whenever you don't care about production sound, it's you know like dance numbers or big sort of battlefield things. Then it's great to just sort of blast a live <laughs> on set. Yeah. I love that. Um, otherwise, you know, you kind of do it a little bit stop and start uh, uh, or in between takes or things like that. And in the case also of this movie, I had done a lot of rehearsals just with the actors, um, you know, on my iPhone and stuff of various, you know, basically all the scenes in the movie. I'd wound up um rehearsing at least at least all the scenes with diego calva who plays manny because he was a relatively incredible what a movie star oh yeah well i mean he was it it was uh it was a very lucky find and it was um but it was kind of but it's sort of figuring out the character with him through rehearsal and then i would kind of you know i'd shoot on my iphone i'd cut it together and i'd use justin's score you know um uh you know or demos of score um and you know sort of set them against scenes and things like that so there was kind of this working version of you know sort of iphone version of the movie with uh mm. with music already where and you, you know so that kind of gives you a sense too of like okay this is really vibing this is great this is the sort of language of the movie here you know maybe maybe this is you know one of the cues that justin has done maybe it doesn't work so well in this part of the movie we can appropriate it somewhere else or you know you kind of see what what falls and what rises through that process um, all, all that about the about the trumpet player and that process um yeah I kind of read before today about him as much as I could. It was hard to figure out, so correct me if I miss something. Was he a trumpet player before the show, before he shot it? And in this very process, did he have an earwig and he played along to something, Justin, you'd pre-recorded? Those scenes always fascinate me, music scenes in your movies and how you do them. Well, the reason you have a hard time figuring out the the uh, his backstory is because uh, and he, he'll now joke about this. Jovan, he did the classic actor thing, which is uh, just if they ask you if you can do it, just say you can. So he <laughs> he, he did an amazing audition uh, for the role. That was just I mean, he's just a, just one of the best actors I've ever worked with. And it was one of those, mm. one of the, one of those auditions where it's just kind of immediately like, OK, this 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 is the guy, except I'd been very adamant for my own kind of peace of mind that I only wanted to look at people who already played trumpet. They didn't have to be Miles Davis, but they just had to really at least, you know, have a handle on the instrument. Um, and, uh, uh, and so he had this great, you know, this great audition comes in and I knew some of his work from earlier movies as well. So I was excited and I was like, Oh, I didn't know he's a trumpet. And so he really plays trumpet. Oh yeah. Yeah. Plays trumpet. Yeah. 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 He's been playing all his life. And lo and behold, he'd like picked it up for like one afternoon in third grade or something. That was his playing trumpet. Of course. But, uh, but he uh, but he wound up doubling down and and um, and practicing his head off and uh, 
Um, and uh, yeah, and then and then exactly, we we got him a trumpet. We got him the actual trumpet that he'd be playing on set to practice to to really get to know mm-hmm. that. And and then he would have earwigs, or again, we'd be playing live um, live playback on set, and he'd be playing along to it. Um, I mean, Justin can speak more to that to the the shooting of it, but um, yeah, Justin, I was really interested in the melodies he played because this is a little inside baseball, but. Sometimes you hear a movie that's about the 20s and they're playing bebop and flecked licks and I want to yell in the middle of the theater. Dude, you're, you're 20 years too early. What do you... And you didn't. And I really appreciate that. It wasn't bop. It wasn't jazz that showed up later in history. And a lot of people don't understand that. Was that conscious? Was I kind of overexcited about how you articulated the music in a way that wasn't postmodern in obvious ways. That was what was so cool. It's a complicated question, but yeah, you understand my drift there. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we did twenties jazz, but you're also no, not right. at all. We didn't do that kind of familiar bop that you also hear. You know, just as a placeholder for all jazz. You know, this is what jazz sounds like, at least in movies. Um, so yeah, we were trying to be just kind of create our own world a little bit um, to be definitely more wild, more unhinged, more aggressive in a lot of these tracks than anything we know of being in the twenties. Um, an idea Damien told me early on, which I thought was uh, kind of inspiring was that in his research, he found that th- the music that was recorded in the twenties that we've heard because it was recorded is really just a small sliver of what was actually played in the twenties. Um, and there was a underground music scene. There were all sorts of musicians doing very interesting things um, that just never had the opportunity to go into the studio and lay it down. So we thought, um, well, at a super drug-fueled party full of wild people and a wild band going off the rails, what could that be? What could that sound like? And um, whether or not that's what was any, anything that was actually played. We just sort of, Damien created a, a world. He created a very entertaining and, and wild world. And, and we were trying to create music that would go along with that. And I can, the four on the floor aspect of finding that underneath mm-hmm. a kind of 20s a, vibe. So it feels contemporary instantly. For sure. There's a lot of modern dance influence for on the floor. Like you talk about that sort of pounding kick drum, which I sweetened with a little 808 to give it even more. Nice. There's, you know, dance hi-hat, which you definitely didn't have back then, but it still gave you that sort of really fun dance. Um, you know, everybody on amphetamines feel um, when that when that was right for the scene. Um, there were certain structural things that I got inspired by modern dance, you know, with risers and drops and those moments that sort of build anticipation and then really deliver that dance moment. Um, there, and then there were a lot of rock and roll influences. Something Damien and I talked about a lot was like, what would it feel like if we had riffs, really riff based jazz, the kind of riffs mm. that could be on an electric guitar, but you do it with unison horns, you do it with a horn section it would be very muscular. And that's also not really 20s jazz as far as we know, but it still gave you that feel, that kind of rock and roll aggressive feel, but it was using the instrumentation of a band from the time. So it was kind of a little bit there and a little bit something else. 
the uh, three years basically to work on the music for this. Um, how much did the music change throughout that that period of time? The way you were thinking about it, or was was it continuing to evolve? I know deadlines can sometimes be scary if they're too tight, but also there's the flip side, which is if you have such a long runway to be thinking about things, you inevitably start to think, oh, well, maybe I should do this instead. Uh, how much did it change throughout the process? Most of the tunes were locked in before we shot. I mean, we had really identified all this, all the set pieces, all that was done. And then we used most of those same tunes as either those spilled over into score or we used them as, as purely score cues. So a lot of that, like the major DNA was there, but the experimentation and recording never stopped to the point that I was, we were on the dub stage and I was still bringing in new musicians and, and getting more options and more layers and more solos and more tr trying things up until the very, very end, basically until they said, you have to be done. P past when they said you had, you had to be done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Damien's smiling. People yeah. not super happy with me at one point, but. Hey, <laughs> what, yeah. what directors? I mean, I imagine you're aware of how your musicality is rare i mean i having the great privilege of working with a lot of directors it's insane how few of them understand music and other than i don't know man that what is that a clarinet do we have i don't like clarinets you know all that silly stuff that really happens and then you you get to you or ang lee I mean, you are two directors who really understand what's happening and get so deeply involved. I kind of wonder, do you think about a picture from the music up before the story? Everything you've done is is around music. The first man, not so much, but... Well, do you, do you write to music? Yeah, I mean, how? what is that process? It's so different from other directors. Yeah, I um, I think I just find music so helpful again to crystallize a mood, you know, some kind of a some kind of a some kind of an emotion that I want something to convey, and and uh, you know, it's it's uh, and it can be so simple that it that it sort of again can hinge on just a single melody or single sort of sound you know um uh with you know with la la land it, it, i mean it's again going back you know with whiplash it was it was uh in that case it started with the sound of pieces that i played as a drummer kind of uh, uh coming up when i was younger and a certain kind of polyrhythmic you know 70s big band jazz intensity mm -hmm. that just was sort of um this kind of felt like this angular violent approach to music that mm -hmm. um, that felt like that was going to be the music for the boxing version of a music movie. Um, La La Land, it was it was Justin and I just shared this love for kind of French melodies that sort of uh, mm -hmm. meld happy and sad in in one in one cadence, you know. So it was just like it was that um, first man. It was the idea of could there be some kind of sound that would communicate grief across the cosmos, and that's where the idea of the theremin or something you know some kind of melody played plaintively like that that felt like feels like you're hearing someone singing from a billion miles away and it's kind of refracted through space mm -hmm. um and babylon it was a party babylon you know ultimately and, and 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 trying to then kind of define well what is a party a party is both the exuberant youthful innocent joyfulness 
of the uh, initial fro of the party. It's also the time at the party, you know, two thirds in where it starts to get a little ugly. And then it's the aftermath of the party, which can be both sad, but also maybe bittersweet. There can be a beauty to it. When the dawn starts to come in, there can mm -hmm. be a melancholy because you got to get back to life. There can be a sense of loss, a sense of hope. Um, so that whole thing, you know, we, I think we talked a lot about Fellini and, you know, Rhoda. We talked a lot about... Um, I thought exactly the same. And they uh, actually, Rhoda would write for Fellini before they shot. Right, which and that was something I'd read about too. You know, it's it's sort of, uh, and you get that sense from Fellini movies and a lot of those Italian movies that would post sync. You know, where they play sound on set, even though they're quote sound movies. Uh, sorry, not sound on set, um, music on set, and they just the camera feels like it's dancing. You know, so I think that the the actors feel like they're dancing even when they're walking. So I think that idea with this movie of that that even when we're not in a party scene it should feel like a party, which again, doesn't mean that it's always just balls to the wall, you know, 808s and, and, and dance beats, but it should be, it should, we should be going through some part of the stages up and down of a party. And that's kind of that, that the, the idea of the, of a party as a living organism that goes through a life cycle, that that needed to be really the DNA of the movie. And, and, and of course you can't define a party without music. So I think it was, it, it was, it was also sort of, clear both to both of us early on that even more so than some of the previous movies we had done music was just going to be um it was kind of going to be the only way to really crystallize the movie because there's so many storylines so many characters so many incidents it spans over so many years it's this sprawling kind of morass of a movie uh that's trying to kind of take in a whole society in one grasp um so the music was going to be the one thing that could actually unify it and crystallize it and give it a singular identity um and uh yeah so um it kind of felt even more crucial on this one maybe than on previous ones if that makes sense can i ask from a writing perspective um is it intimidating to dive back into an era that there i mean it's hollywood so we have some we have some things from from the era but um yeah i i wrote a, a podcast called blockbuster that was set in the 1970s we have lots of video of the 1970s you know like there's there are plenty of ways for us to get to to things like that in the 1920s, as uh, Justin already mentioned, there's a lot of music that maybe wasn't ever recorded. You know, there there are things. Maybe there's some sheet music someplace. Maybe someone scribbled some notes someplace. But what's the research like to try to make you know the 1920s feel authentic? Given that this is still you're still you know putting you know your your kind of unique uh, storytelling on it, but you want it to feel of the era. Is it hard to do that with something that's this far back? It is. I mean, it's. It's. Yeah. There's definitely that thing of the further back you go, the 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 more the more you have to sort of recreate. I, I think um, the added challenge with this was that even though it's far back, the 1920s I, somehow, for whatever reason, we today have such a clear vision in our head of what mm -hmm. the 1920s are supposed to be, what we think they were, and I think Justin and I both were just we were definitely not interested in just adding more fuel to that. We wanted to just completely. Uh, try to try to sort of demolish all those preconceptions, try to just go against them. So um, the same way we knew certain musical things were not going to appear in the movie, certain visual things were not going to appear or they would be used as counterpoint. So, you know, bobbed haircuts, flapper dresses, you know, people holding martini glasses, doing the Charleston, like that stuff was either not going to be seen in this movie because you've seen it too many times before and it's cliche, nice. or it was going to be used as a, counterpoint to kind of show how out of sorts out of um you know how how 
uh, misfit our characters were. You know, for instance, sometimes Margot kind of winds up. We, we would sort of joke that sometimes, you know, like there's a scene later in the movie where Margot winds up at this very kind of rich person party where everyone's in tuxedos and hors d'oeuvres and stuff. That they are needed to feel a little bit like um, some kind of, you know, wild animal from the future has stumbled into a 1920s movie and needs to kind of suddenly play the part and can't. You know, so using the expectations of the period a little bit to subvert um, the rest of it, you know, that that was kind of part of the game. So it meant, you know, but I still wanted everything to feel authentic and everything to, uh, I guess, be, be authentic. So it all had to stem from research. So it wound up basically being uh, the, 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 the sort of the rule became find, you know, anytime we found a photograph or a piece of documentary evidence of something that surprised us, that did not feel like what we thought the 20s would feel like. Any photograph of long, wild hair, any photograph of, uh, you know, a, a type of outfit that felt really, would feel scandalous even in the 60s, and you'd never think someone in the 20s would be wearing it, but these would be photographs from the 20s. Anytime we found something like that, those would become you know, our kind of golden references and we'd sort of build, build upon them. And so we had kind of ultimately between me and costumes and sets and camera and extras casting, we, we had a sort of binder of all the reference images that we, that we, that we liked. And it was always with that sort of common commonality of things from the era that are accurate to the era, but that are not what you expect from the era that are shocking. It's fabulous to hear this. I must confess i just finished kiki man ray it's a new book about kiki oh. montparnasse do you know the story I, and i i mean i i know more the man ray side of it but that's i didn't know that is this a new book about a new about brand the... new book about kiki of montparnasse and of awesome. course we both maybe know the man ray story for the same reason because we grew up in princeton and i was close to do you know the princeton connection to man ray i don't know the prince i know yeah no i more know the like the french you know the french paris Right. Oh, there's a very deep Princeton connection to Man Ray. I, I knew him when I was eight years old. He he came, his niece. Knew him? Yeah, his niece. And I went to stay with wow. him in Paris. Something I... Really? Yes. I'm, was, I'm like... Uh, yeah, but all I was... Uh, he His niece lived um, on Drake's Corner Road in Princeton and was... We were very close and... Man Ray's family. niece lived in Princeton. Correct. What Naomi, was Man Ray like? Naomi Savage. Man Ray was awesome. Man Ray was awesome. Man Ray, you will both enjoy this, and I, I diverge, but when I was in France with Man Ray as a 19-year-old sophomore at our alma mater, Man Ray would have me open his mail for him, and I remember opening a letter from a junior at Tufts saying, Dear Mr. Ray, I'm doing a thesis on you. Would you sign this three by five card enclosed so I can put it in my thesis? And he kind of gave it back to me next. You know, <laughs> I, I thought, oh, that's really close to kind of my whole life. Somebody doing that. It was so perfect. Um, but the reason I mention it is in the book, Kiki Man Ray, the really great story of Man Ray's mistress, the 20s are also incredibly present incredibly mm. modern mm -hmm. a real reaction to the ghastly event that the world had just been yeah. through yeah. which you know the war to end all wars yeah. and i thought of it i thought of two things watching babylon one was wow paris was also just cocaine and absinthe and 
you know, Kiki walking into a bar where somebody had a snake around their neck and a live fox and, you know, shit that was just, we thought we were being freaky in the 80s and 90s. And <laughs> they were original hipsters. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Hollywood and, but also, it's interesting that you described the rhythm of a party in Babylon because there was another thought I had during Babylon, which is, I don't know if you, what you would think about this, either of you, there was a certain, there's a certain desperation at a party. Like, I don't want to go back to real life. I don't want this party to end. Can I get any higher? Can I, can I disappear from life in this party? Because when the sun does come up, I'm back to ordinary life. And during those frenetic scenes in Babylon, I had this feeling of, it's kind of, I've been to some wild parties. Maybe all of us have. You're you're away from life mm -hmm. for a moment. Was that a goal of those? I mean, those parties are un. I want to go to one of those parties. It's just leave it right there. I would like to go, particularly if Margot Robbie is actually there. But those party scenes, where did you shoot them? I mean, I've asked you twelve questions at once, but I'm so fascinated by those party scenes. Were they shot here in California? Yes, yeah, they're they were they're all shot in in LA or the LA you know greater LA area. Um, sometimes out in the out in kind of the hinterlands, you know, out in right. sort of closer. To Justin, Lincoln. were you on set for a lot of that? Yeah, for any scenes that had music in them. And how long would it take for? I mean, I don't know either the part the party with the tuxedos where she goes wild animal. Is that a couple days a week? That's two days, that was, right? That was uh, two days, yeah. That was a very tight two days of shooting at Busby Berkeley's old house. Funny Come enough. on. Yeah. Is, what a uh, ghost. Ne next door to Fatty Arbuckles. So, oh, my God. Great ghosts of the... I know, I know. But, but, uh, um, but I, I also just, uh, going back to what you were saying about, like, or, you know, Paris Man Ray, the 20s, it just reminds me of, like, that. I think that was part of the... That was part of the thing too for all of us was just that that it, the the 20s i think have gotten this at least in america we, we have this sort of conception in our heads where it, you know that people had a good time but we've i think we've lost sight of just how radical and wild and anarchic and dangerous and just sort of rules busting the, the time was we sort of it's just like you i think we i think i initially and we all sort of had this have this kind of sense in our head of recent history where where you know a certain kind of drug use or sexual freedom or whatnot didn't really come into being in a way that we would identify as really out there until the 70s or 80s or whatnot and um but then you sort of i mean yeah you, you read about man ray in paris you read you read henry miller you know he's writing in the 30s but he's talking about the 20s uh you know it also in paris you 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 look at uh you look at stories like fatty arbuckle story or louise brooks yeah. whatnot yeah. and Hollywood. i mean it's just uh uh and it's exactly like what you were saying like the 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 the, the ways that pe the extremes people would go this desperation to which it's a desperation to escape that makes sense if you're coming off of world war one if you're coming off of the spanish flu if you're coming off, i mean it's just this was a, a generation that had been just completely had gone through apocalypse basically yeah. uh and uh and so you know it almost makes sense that in reaction to that they would just be like well fuck it you know life is short anyway um uh it's all kind of meaningless anyway 
uh, you know, any moment you could just go into a trench and, and be, you know, shot for no reason, you know, so we might as well just uh, make the most of every moment. There's some kind of a reckless, debaucherous, desperation, hysteria that comes out of that that I think is found, obviously, in Paris, but also found more indirectly in L.A. at the time and in this kind of hive of artists who are making an art form that isn't considered an art form. It's considered vulgar anyway. And so they're kind of left to their own devices and they do their own thing. And that can't last. Eventually that does change. Eventually all of that calms down and real life intrudes. And, you know, uh, the society has to quote, grow up for better or worse, but there's a moment there where it's just unhinged. And uh, that's the moment that we really wanted to try to do justice to in a way that it felt like earlier depictions of the twenties hadn't. And wonder, getting back to the uh, the life cycle of a party, yeah, we have that moment where, like you said, Robert, you don't want to leave and you just want to party as hard as you can. Right. So we have, mu music-wise, we have that music getting as close to going off the rails as possible. But then we also have, like you mentioned, that aftermath phase, which um, we tried to also address. So there's this one track at that opening party um, that happens the morning after. When they're out in the, there's a, a crane shot yeah o over the driveway whatever yeah. you call that well there's it's the queue yeah it's the queue right before that but they kind of go into each other um it's called it people will see on the album it's called gold coast rhythm wallach party and mm -hmm. it was we 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 created it to be the um you know the morning after queue and i mocked it up and it was this sort of sweet wistful hopeful cue with all this counterpoint all the music all the instruments taking uh taking their moment and we recorded it we were at capitol recording it with this with a small band and it was really pretty and i was really happy we finished like a first one two three takes and it sounded really good to me and damien was like okay but can we play it hungover and 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 I was and I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, but you have to keep in mind that everybody is either still drunk or hungover. You know, half the people, most of the people in this room are passed out. The music needs to reflect that. So we then had to start doing take after take where we're telling the musicians, okay, can you play like a little out of tune? Can you play like way off the beat? Can you be sort of barely conscious while you're playing? And and then had to calibrate what that is because the first instincts was to just slide all over the place and it sound it sounded like a cartoon and then we had to refine what just you know sluggish and a bit out of it would sound like. Um, so that was that was a really fun uh, is, is fun moment. There did I just realize accidentally that the Wallach has any relation to DA. Oh my! I forgot you know Da. Of course. I mean, I, I mean, you know, not not relation. I would say, but it's right. just Wallach is a great name that I probably wouldn't have thought of on my own if I didn't know Da Wallach. It's just a great name. I have, I have. Uh, it sounded like a studio mogul's name. It's it does, and it never occurred to me. But Chester, <laughs> Chester French also. I wonder if I was more polite. I don't think I was actually more polite to Chester French when they showed up. I probably said your demos need help too, and then they got signed to Interscope. I have one more. We're we're out of time, but I I personally want to ask both of your opinion about this topic we just got off of, which is you said at one point, Damien, that you know art grew up and the society, you know, in some ways it got it gets commodified, and you think about how in the twenties, Man and Marcel Duchamp and all of them, the artists, you know. Dada comes out of that 
sense of, and I, I don't know if there's any relation to Babylon's moment with a kind of reaction, but why don't we do that now? We're living in a similarly insane time. Do artists today respond with Dada in any way that you can identify to the trauma of today? It's a not a very well-asked question, but as artists, I'd like to hear from both of you, are we all so commodified that we don't break out and do something like Man Ray would and put nails on the bottom of an iron or, you know, an eye on a metronome? Or is there room for that kind of art? And are you both going to make a fabulous art film next that makes no sense and is like Andy Warhol, eight <laughs> hours of people sleeping? Your thoughts on art in a traumatic era and does Babylon reflect it? That's my question. Um, it's a good question. I, I, I think, um, yeah, I have a very hard time, I think, uh, answering beyond my own sort of little limited bubble when it comes to sort of the broader world of art today and, and, and whatnot. I, 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 um, I think that I think I do, you know, it does feel on a certain level, like, like, uh, um, at least again, speaking from my bubble in Hollywood, that w that we sort of, you know, the, the sort of artists there, um, there's a lot of fearfulness. There's a lot of, you know, we're sort of uh, this this kind of the climate feels like uh, you're sort of waiting for the bottom to fall out. There's fear about the future of cinema. There's fear about the future of, you know, what is art in today's age? You know, it's sort of the questions you're asking in a way. Is art so commodified that is art even a thing anymore? Is, you know, is, is, is um these kind of existential you know questions of existential dread um and so in some ways for me i think you know the more that i would kind of be working on this movie for the past number of years and sort of diving into about exactly 100 years ago you know give or take mm -hmm. uh, you know in some ways the more comfort i would get out of it if it, it, you know if that doesn't sound too perverse out of the idea that um that clearly somehow cinema art in general survived responded adapted um thrived you know I, I i i think for instance uh for me you know i relate a lot to filmmakers who maybe felt caught in the middle when sound started coming in and they sort mm -hmm. of they, they learned how to make film a certain way and suddenly they have to adapt to it and many of them felt that the art form had been um irretrievably destroyed you know and would never really would never recover that um that cinema was a silent art form it was music and image um in some ways that's still a kind of an opinion even though i wasn't even born at the time that i share so i can really empathize with it um it's maybe part of why i try to always make whatever excuse i can to wind up in a place with justin where it can just be music and image um and sort of pure cinema in in that sense um but at the same time i'm not going to argue looking back that 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 cinema did die, that nothing great was done in the sound era, that, you know, everything worthwhile doing in cinema was done by 1929 and everything since then has been shit. I don't feel, I don't share that view at all either. So there's a certain kind of comfort I get from looking at the, you know, people worried that the sky's falling at that moment, which it very well may have been for them at that moment. It's not to, it's not to belittle that um, it was cataclysmic, but to kind of know that there was 
a rebound. There was some kind of adaptation, some kind of recovery um, after it. I think the sort of bigger message for me is just that art goes on. You know, art lives on and it's bigger than any one of us. It's bigger than any one career or any one town and it just uh, or even any one medium. And it it survives, sometimes not in ways that we could predict, but um, it's not going away. Well, you've made a historic film. I know that our time yeah. is, is limited and uh, will contribute to the history of art and cinema. And Absolutely. Really uh, director and composer, it's epic. so special that you can be on the same page and be working across different films and be just kind of vibing in the storytelling. So thank you both for uh, for chatting. Damien Chazelle, Justin Hurwitz on this special edition of uh, More Score and Score the Podcast. And allowing us to babble on. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> You're going to hear that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't already. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you. Nice seeing you, Robert. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Same. Bye. See you. Cheers. Bye.